All right. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. And if you're coming back, welcome. So I'm Parissa. I'm Kaylin. And we're actually recording this episode from two different locations. So this is kind of our first trial with this and we're figuring it out. But we thought it was super cool that we could just be like sitting in our pajamas in our beds recording a podcast. Um, especially with scheduling as we go forward, we don't really know what our scheduling is going to be like. So this is kind of how we're doing that. So speaking of this podcast, um, we're not sure yet who's going to be taking over for us next year. Um, and if this is the last podcast that you guys are getting from us, it's been a fun ride. We, this is our, our 12th episode. We have been really fortunate and, um, kind of given access to this platform and, um, We've loved using it to kind of amplify issues that we really care about. So, you know, on that note, be on the lookout for a podcast that per, that me and Kaylin will be doing on our own um, just for funsies. And it may or may not include wine slash wine, drink recommendations. Um, so, yeah. Kaylin, do you want to give us the next housekeeping bullet? Yes. So being that it is June, um, it's Pride Month and though this isn't necessarily the central topic of this episode because if we wanted if we were to do a pride episode we wanted to make sure we included folks from the RRC um, mm-hmm. or someone from the LGBTQIA+ community mm-hmm. um, on here but since we uh, were unable because of scheduling and all that good stuff we just wanted to um, acknowledge that it's pride month but also for any straight allies out there just mm-hmm. Our, you know, kind of advice um, going into Pride, just remember that Pride isn't for you. Um, As Alexandra Bowles, who is a strategist at GLAAD, says, at Pride, allies are essentially guests in the LGBT folks' home. Follow the lead of the people around you. Listen to your LGBT peers, what your LGBT peers have to say. Take part in the celebration. But remember, it's first and foremost about the LGBT people. So... If you attend any Pride festivities um, or take part in any events related to Pride, remember to center and uplift the voices, experiences, and humanity mm-hmm. of the LGBTQIA plus folks around you. Yeah. Um, and also remember that the Stonewall Riots, which were, which are really the um, historical events that Pride is really born out of, um, mm-hmm. and that form that the those uh, movements of resistance that. Um, built pride is they were started by trans women of color so remember that it's Mm -hmm. important and this year is the 50th year anniversary of the stonewall riots which is so cool because like honestly just looking at how far we've come in 50 years and like how how much sacrifice was given so that you know like lgbtqia plus members of the future could you know like live and love freely i think that's just so powerful to me mm-hmm. um so yeah so today's topic is culinary racism slash appropriation and we're specifically going to be talking about the practice of white chefs appropriating food from people slash groups who have less cultural capital than them. Um, and we also are going to touch a little bit on kind of the colonization and like remarketing of Arab food as Israeli food, quote unquote. Um, and an example of what is kind of to come in this episode is Andrew Zimmern, which I 
I kind of liked before this. Like, I didn't know I anything really about I was really mad about this. <laughs> I know, I know. I was like, I was rooting for you, girl. But he opened, he was opening up a Chinese quote-unquote restaurant with a tiki bar for some bizarre reason in Minnesota to save Midwesterners from horseshit Chinese restaurants. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that later. So, Kaylin, do you want to talk about the little section we have um, called Food is Political? Yes. So um, food, like a lot of things in the U.S., food often goes hand in hand with racial politics. Um, I think, you know, really at the end of the day, everything is political. Um, That includes food. Um, But food is often left out of kind of the conversation of identity um, and racial politics and kind of the um, entire, you know, is racial landscape, you could say, of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you just think about it, there's so many ways in which food is often tied with identity, particularly of identities of um, communities of color. So, I mean, just think about fried chicken. Fried chicken is often linked with um, the Black community. And uh, it's there's a lot of historical reasons why um, there was... I th- it's blank. I'm blanking on the name of the TV show I was watching, but um, the show I was watching, they uh, brought on a kind of like a food historian, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. I, I think that's what his title was. Um, talked about and talked about fried chicken and how fried chicken was um, really brought about and invented by African slaves in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times they were, it was used because you could carry it in your hand quite easily um it's not something that like falls apart it's pretty solid um and it's it's pretty hearty food um it would be taken on them as they as some could escape slavery and so Mm -hmm. on kind of in their journeys and their travels on the road they would carry like fried chicken with them and eat it Mm -hmm. um and then think about the fact that today you know Prisa kind of mentioned um remarketing food so Mm -hmm. Popeye's chicken the spokeswoman, the spokesperson is a black woman who seems like way too happy to be serving oh, no. people fried chicken. Yeah. Um, and so there, again, there are these subtle kind of hints and links that food often has to various communities of color. Um, mm-hmm. Thinking about things like MSG. So yeah. MSG is often linked with Chinese food. Um, and it's always been something, I think it gets a bad rap of being something quote unquote bad. Um, but it's only really called bad for you or unhealthy for you when it's in Chinese food. Um, mm-hmm. It actually brought about this whole idea of Chinese restaurant syndrome, which is an incredibly racist. What is um, the syndrome? So it essentially came about because someone had written about how they had experienced these like symptoms of nausea, headache, or um, fatigue after eating Chinese food. Mm-hmm. Um and they had talked about like, well, this was like the last thing I ate, and the I, my symptoms came out like a couple hours later. Um, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was the MSG. Oh, um, what the hell? That's totally like, okay, that's weird. Yeah, and there are like tons of like fake, you know, research. There's been tons of fake research done linking MSG to negative health effects. When mm-hmm. we'll talk about this later, but like MSG is literally salt. <laughs> the word, MSG stands for monosodium glutamate. Yeah. And everyone talks about umami and like how that's so great. And um, that's the flavor profile that you should be striving for. MSG is essentially pure 
umami. Yeah. Um, the way that it, I think, hits. So apparently, the way it hits your tongue and how the molecules react is that it then creates the umami flavor. So if you want pure umami, eat like a spoon of MSG. Um, and I know a lot of Asian families will keep MSG like like a jar of it in their kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know like this kind of movement against MSG has really confused a lot of like the older Asian um, like individuals in a community that might be the ones who are cooking, right? Because it's kind of like not even in their own kitchen do they have like that autonomy to make that choice without feeling like they're being guilted for the choices they're making, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's nuts too, is that there was a study done, um, I think back in the seventies or eighties. And that was the study that a lot of people were like, Oh, that's, that proves that MSG is bad for you. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they had like literally injected MSG into like the bloodstream, okay. which is like, <laughs> Of course, it's going to be bad for you. Then, yeah, <laughs> you can't even inject water into your bloodstream without it being bad for you. Yeah. So it was again phony science. There are a ton of great videos out um, on you know MSG and like kind of the myth of um, MSG. My favorite quote though is um, the late Anthony Bourdain. He was doing his oh, one of his shows, God. Um, and he was talking to his uh, one of his good friends um, who. Oh my God! How am I? I'm blanking on his name too. He's the it's it's the French chef that looks exactly like him, um, and he has mm-hmm. a operated restaurants in the world in New York City. But it was funny they were traveling in China, and um, Anthony Bourdain turns to him and he's like, "You know why MSG gets a bad rap?" And then the other chef says, "No, I don't." And he was like, "Racism," and just left it there. <laughs> oh I, don't know that's I love that. I mean, it's true. I mean, yeah, um, but again. A little more on that later. And again, you know, food, as, in terms of like food being political, it's again, something that is often tied to identities and identity formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm also just going to throw this out there, like food or what like white people will call quote unquote ethnic food. I hate that term so much. Yeah. But um, it always ends up being, in my opinion, like this weird point of fascination for white people. Sometimes. Truth. Yeah. They like, We'll find some food trend that um, people have been doing for like centuries and like completely like buy into it and like think it's the next greatest thing. Mm-hmm. Um, think of uh, kombucha. Yeah, <laughs> or kombucha is like, super popular right now. Like even um, boba tea right now, mm-hmm. right? Oh my god, don't get me. Started. Yeah, or like pho, um, mm-hmm. when sushi, because I remember a couple years ago, everyone and their mama was eating sushi, even if they didn't like fish. Yeah. And so I, I don't know, I feel like a lot of these trends, you're right, a lot of them have to do um, with like marketing and profiting off of Asian food. And it's interesting because it's it's usually like Asian food and then Latinx, Chicanx foods, but specifically like Mexican food. Mm-hmm. That is a definite point of fascination for white people. And I'm not really sure why those two specific categories. I think I think it well, so for Asian food in particular, I think it really goes back to this idea of Orientalism mm-hmm. um, and the exotization of like the quote unquote far east as like a yeah. far away, you know, land that is exotic and it's got all this different stuff going on. Yeah. Um and it seems like in a whole other world. Um, and so it's fascinating to them for some reason. Um, and 
I think, but at the same time, I also think like the fascination with Mexican food is not only our proximity in Mexico, but also that like half of our country is Mexico. Is Mexican, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, Texas and Texas, California, the whole entire American Southwest were essentially illegally taken by the United States from Mexico. So yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, more on that later. So um, let's just jump into you know culinary racism slash appropriation itself. Fun mm. fact, could not find a definition for culinary racism. So who knows? Mm. Maybe OML here, we're trying, we're uh, treading into new waters. Yeah. <laughs> Groundbreaking work for sure. Yes. So, Prisa, do you want to talk a little bit about um, kind of the background of culinary appropriation? And yeah, for sure. Um, so getting into the culinary appropriation, uh, the, the definition that Kaylin was able to put together after doing the background research was that chefs slash cooks claiming over ownership over a type of cooking or cuisine that comes from a group of people slash community that holds less cultural capital than they do. So Professor TJ Talley from Washington and Lee University uh, has a quote, and it says, is the food imitative or celebrative, or is it claiming certain styles of cooking yeah, as its and own? I mean, I think it's a, a question of ownership. A viral People should feel that, free to make um, types of food that Twitter are not from their own cultural background, but um, it is about ownership. I could learn and master Japanese cooking, British but I do not think I would food. ever have the space to feel like I could um, explain to Japanese yeah, he's people been, like, how their cooking should be done. <laughs> and you see this a lot um, on cooking shows. More often than not, it's a white chef telling the audience how to cook authentic, quote unquote, food that isn't from their own culture and then he gave it background. to a Thai chef to taste and then literally got destroyed by him and because we can't play you the video right now I wanted to read you the transcript from the video so um it <laughs> I love it so much and I liked um, him okay. too before this so it opens up with the Thai chef his name is Chef Chang um yeah. he turns to Ramsey and has this weird like hit this like look of disgust on his face and literally snarls, snarls at this snarls at him with this he says what do you want to know from me ask me mm-hmm. ramsey answers how is it um and then chef Chang says this is oh what, this is amazing this is not pad thai mm-hmm. at all pad thai has to be sweet sour and salty and then yes. ramsey <laughs> mumbles some nonsense about how it's like not too bad but he knows that it's not perfect um and then Chang answers with yeah for you but not for me <laughs> which i think is amazing and really speaks to this idea that these a lot of white chefs have this false notion that um if they learn how to cook something then they're this expert on it and then can go around and tell other people from that culture or that community how to make it which i never really understood um there's also a show called beat bobby flay on the food network um and i actually haven't watched it um and I'm just like really curious because like how many chefs of color days ago against making trying to make like quote unquote ethnic food um in this in this notion to be a chef from that community at that thing which again oh, yeah. like I can't say to like if that show itself I've seen a does that a lot um, I haven't watched it no to be honest like I've seen a good amount of it because I love Food Network mm-hmm. I love watching it but 
I'm not a huge cook. Like I'll cook every now and then, but you're right. I had never noticed that before, but a lot of times what happens is there are two chefs and they are competing. So Mm -hmm. they make like dishes that are, you know, like given to them. So someone says like, okay, make sloppy joes and they both have to make like their best sloppy joe. And then like one of them is the winner and the winner has to compete in the second round against Bobby Flay and the chef, like the guest chef who is trying to beat Bobby Flay is the one who picks what the second, you know, dish that they're going to cook is. And it's supposed to be like a dish that they're very comfortable with. A lot of times it is a cultural dish. Mm -hmm. And so Bobby Flay makes his best version of that dish and the chef makes their best version too. And then the judges will kind of like, you know, say which one was better. But honestly, you brought up something that I had never thought about before. And I can only remember one episode off the top of my head. And the dude was Iranian. And he made um, dolme mm-hmm. for like Iranians out there. You know what I'm talking about? It's like this, it's stuffed grape leaves. Mm-hmm. And um, that was the only episode I can remember where he actually did beat Bobby Flay. And there's been multiple other, you know, contestants who have come on with like really beautiful inspiring powerful dishes that mean a lot for them and their family and their culture and then the judges will be like no this man this white man who does not know anything about this dish at all literally whipped it up in three seconds like somehow his dish is better than all of the emotion and love and history that's poured into this person's dish mm-hmm. yeah again going back to Teresa Talley like this question of ownership um and mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, it's just like, it was nuts to me. And that, I mean, honestly, that video, I watched it to make myself feel better because it's so funny. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, speaking of Ramsey, again, he's on a tear. So he has this pop-up restaurant in London that is opening actually this month called Lucky Cat. It is um, Mm -hmm. a quote-unquote authentic Asian eating (laughs) house that for its preview invited only one Asian food critic to see so like only one of the food critics in the room was asian and when she called out to when she called them out for being like for how utterly racist the not just the entire concept of the restaurant was but the fact that she was the token that was chosen Mm -hmm. to be at this preview and when she called them out for that ramsey then did the whole like white tears thing turned around and called her comments quote-unquote offensive citing the fact that he had otherwise gotten very positive feedback, um, which completely dismissed the fact that, again, she was the only Asian person in a room of 30 to 40 people. And this is in London. Yeah. England has a lot of Asian people living there, like from South Asia, from Southeast Asia, from East Asia. Um, a lot of There are a lot of Asians living in England, so it's not that hard to find some people to fill the room. There's no excuse. Yeah, there's like literally no excuse. Um, and what makes it worse is that the person that Ramsey is working with to open the restaurant, if you didn't think that it was, that was that bad, the person that he's working with to open the restaurant, the head chef, his his name is Ben Orpwood, who in his, in Ramsey's word is quote unquote, way, quote unquote, way more qualified and experienced than me in this field by dint of having researched and traveled to South Asia for quote unquote, many months. Mm-hmm. the thing of you know how like white people were like be like oh my god i traveled to x x y or z country so now i'm like an expert and i can never be like um racist or uh bigoted towards them yeah which is a false notion um and so again like 
the entire concept of the restaurant is built upon this like weird fascination and orientalism exoticization of Asian food again it's not even like I don't even know what kind of Asian supposed to be it's called an authentic Asian eating house its name is much that um and even the description of the restaurant is like low-key high-key icky it's called (laughs) it's this is this is the description taken from from them I'm I'm quoting here and it's quote unquote an authentic Asian eating house and a vibrant late night lounge inspired by the drinking dens of 1930s Tokyo and get ready for it the far Mm -hmm. east Oh my god. Wait, okay. Quick segue, all right? So I have a real problem with the concept of the Far East, the East, the Middle East, because when we're using those terms, we are referring to those very beautiful, very unique, and very like independent regions of the world as being like, you know, a distance away from the West, which is like the center of our world, which it's not, you know? Mm-hmm. And I know like um, yesterday I was at the Mina grad um, ceremony and Dr. Griffin was there and um, Dr. Griffin from the ethnic studies department, we love her. And she was talking about how um, when we are using, basically that's what she was saying, when we are using the term Middle East or Far East, we are referencing those parts of the world as being you know, a distance away from the West. And I feel like even the even the language we use on a day-to-day basis and we don't always think about um, is very ingrained and it's very socialized and it's very racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, the Far East. <laughs> okay, first of all, <laughs> Lynn has no words. The earth is round. Don't listen to Kyrie Irving. It is not flat. The earth is round. It's a sphere. So how can we ever point to one particular thing as being like the center of it when everything is, it's all relative, you know? Does he really believe that? I don't know. He put it in the, uh, like, he was asked at like a press conference one time and he said something about like, how do we know that the earth is round? Oh my (laughs) God. And I really, I don't know if it was like kind of a thing to deflect from like basketball questions or what. I just... (laughs) I just, I can't. My head hurts. (laughs) My head hurts. But it's like, how? Like, it's not like a, they talk about it, it's like a whole fucking other world. It's literally Mm -hmm. on the same globe. Um, Japan isn't honestly that far away. Yeah. In my opinion. Um, And it's just, okay, also no one, no one refers to Asia as the Far East anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. anyone who has any sense. Also, it's, like, it's essentially, like, it's essentially, I see it as the same as using the term Oriental to describe Asian people. First of all, it's problematic. Um, It's also, (laughs) no one says it. Like, I don't, I I don't know how they ever thought they could successfully market a Mm -hmm. restaurant and get away with putting in the description the, the phrase far east to refer to asia yeah i don't know like i it's just like who is who is making these who is making these decisions but yeah. i mean i mean speaking of that Rosa, you want to get into what one of their drinks is called i remember be having us having a conversation oh, about God, this yes okay so 
at this restaurant that we're talking about with uh with Ramsey opening, uh, there's also a drink by the name of prepare yourself honestly is bad white geisha, which by itself is a lot to unpack. And um, Kaylin, I I really don't know much about geishas. And so I don't want to misspeak, but do you kind of want to address why, um, you know, the casual use of the term geisha is problematic in and of itself? Yeah. So geisha, you know, in a very traditional sense are Japanese women who have, you know, they train for most of their lives to be, to get, you know, the title of geisha. Um, And they're really just, you know, performers at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. they um, traditionally have worked in, they worked in like uh, Japanese tea houses, uh, serving tea, um, performing for the patrons of these tea houses, playing instruments, dancing, singing, all that sort of stuff. So they're literally just like women who perform. Um, but they have been, the term itself, geisha, and you know, the image of a geisha has been heavily sexualized by um, kind of Western people and um, white people really, at the end of the day, um, as these, like, pillars of, like, Japanese beauty, um, they're often equated with prostitutes, um, again, very hypersexualized, mm-hmm. um, and hypersexualizing oftentimes Japanese women, and it's often, um, kind of thrown out to, as, like, kind of a desirable thing to, like, be seen as a geisha or whatever, yeah. um, I don't, it just, it's, like, the term itself doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily anything different. Again, like the very traditional, like historical context of the word is just a woman who is working at a tea house and um, serves the, serves the tea as well as um, performs for the patrons, but um, has turned into this like very hypersexual term that has been used um, along with many other, you know, terms or stereotypes to hypersexualize Asian women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the fact that it's also called white geisha, I think, is really important too because colorism is so yeah. heavily present in like in Japanese in the Japanese community as well as in like the broader context, the Asian community. Um, you know, geishas often will paint their faces white, um, and so they'll look very pale, like unnaturally white. They look like a sheet of paper, like literally the same like colors, like a sheet of they paper. They would powder their faces, um, right? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, like. The idea of looking like paler um, is often tied in Asia, at least, to the fact that like if you are lighter skin, that means you don't have to work outside, mm-hmm. um, which meant that you had like economic stability, you were better off financially. So um, you would—that's why you would be more desirable. Um, but I think the fact that he that there is a name chosen and used for this drink at a place that lies that relies heavily on being something that in, it was inspired by quote unquote, the far East is like highly problematic. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of disgusting. Yeah. And honestly, like a lot of times I'll have people kind of ask me like, okay, you know, every single day, I feel like if you do care about, you know, social justice and social change and, you know, just kind of like leveling the playing field and, you 
eliminating structural oppression as much as possible. I feel like every day you have to kind of be working to check yourself and like remind yourself, ask yourself, educate yourself about whether something that you're doing is problematic or not. And a lot of people ask me like, what is the appropriate way to respond to something when um, like you're called out on something problematic? And I want to highlight something that I had told Kaylin before. Um, and it has to do with Fenty Beauty. So I don't know how many of you guys play with makeup, but I am very into makeup. I just don't like wearing it because, you know, I'm at a point where I just, I'm just not like a makeup fan, but I like, you know, staying up to date with like what's being released, especially with Rihanna, you know, launching a really successful makeup brand and kind of like really breaking through a lot of ceilings. I, love her. I follow her on every single platform, Fenty Beauty everywhere. And a while ago, um, they were launching a blush or like a reddish toned highlighter kind of. And um, they had called it Geisha Chic. And Kaylin, do you remember this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so they had called it Geisha Chic and they had said, you know, like, oh, we're going to launch this Friday. And it, they were launching Geisha Chic and they were launching a lot of other products. And so, you know, I remember I had seen that and I went to the comment section and I noticed that somebody had commented and she was somebody who identified as um, Asian. I'm not sure from where, but she had basically said like, you know, Fenty Beauty, I'm really disappointed that like you guys chose to name this blush, you know, Geisha Chic, when you could have named it something else. And I feel like you're just perpetuating the like fetishization of geishas and Japanese culture and kind of like really misunderstanding and misconstruing what, you know, being a geisha really meant. And I looked at the girl's profile and it's not like she had millions of followers, you know, she had just maybe like a couple hundred, um, And then later, I remember she had posted a picture of Fenty Beauty going into her DMs and they had said, you know, like, thank you so much for educating us. Like, we really appreciate it. Thank you for, like, letting us know kind of the background and where we made a mistake. We want to let you know that, like, and first they acknowledge the fact that it takes effort to educate people, you know? And a lot of times people Mm -hmm. who are educating you, like... I don't ever walk into a situation where I have to educate somebody and I'm convinced that I'm going to change their mind. In fact, I'm like, this could pretty much make them not want to change their mind just to spite me, right? But they really acknowledged the fact that she had educated them and shared that information with them and they had looked into it further and that they were actually going to be pulling it. So they weren't going to be launching it. They were going to pull it. They were going to send all the cartons back, change the name. So take the name off the labels, off of everything, rename it and then like launch it or release it at a later date. And I feel like that to me was so powerful because it showed that they are not just about, you know, like empowerment for like darker skin people who maybe don't have like the appropriate foundation ranges that they need. Um, but also everybody, like it's really a brand for everybody. And I feel like educating yourself and also appreciating the education that you are given by people around you that's so important. And that's one of the main ways that like even Andrew Zimmern or Gordon Ramsay, if they had like acknowledged the fact that a mistake was made and then worked to remedy it, don't you think that would have been so much better? Yeah. I mean, we'll get into Andrew Zimmern a little later. Um, cause he kind of tried to do an apology that didn't necessarily like super work well, but he like, I think he understood like where a lot of people were coming from or he was more open to the idea mm-hmm. of like, being told he was wrong. Like, Ramsey just, like, doubled down on it. 
And like, instead of, you know, responding positively, he turned around and essentially attacked this woman of color for speaking her mind and calling them out on their bullshit, which yeah. is not what you want to do. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Oh my god, he's there's so much and there's so much more too. Yeah. Ramsey, do you want to talk yeah. about his show? So Ramsey, back to what we were saying about the white geisha drink, he isn't a stranger to this criticism. Uh his show Uncharted, Ramsey he said, like, there's a quote from this show, and Ramsey would be tested against the locals, pitting his own interpretations of regional dishes against the tried and true classics. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? I don't understand. I don't know how you can't, like, not get it. Like, what is, what is stopping your head? Because he's done this so many times. There's a history of true. this. And, like, a d- documented history. Like, what? is what is stopping you in your head he probably just feels like he's too privileged to actually have to do anything about it or change what he's doing yeah and so other problematic restaurants slash people are andrew zimmern so he opened up a chinese restaurant quote unquote chinese in minnesota <laughs> called lucky cricket and kaylin in her show notes it, she's she's written what is it with white people adding lucky to the names of their asian quote unquote restaurants <laughs> Do you want to talk more about that? I don't know what it is because, okay, Lucky Cricket, like, what does that, I, like, I personally, like, don't know if that means anything to, like, Chinese people or, like, in Chinese folklore, what that means. Uh, Lucky Cat, I think, makes a little more sense from Gordon Ramsay. Um, Supposedly, it's supposed to be, like, that is, I mean, that's literally the English translation of what's called a Manaki Neko in Japanese and that is often placed at, you know, businesses or restaurants oh, like to kind cats? of usher good. Yeah, the waving cat. So the idea that the cat is waving in the way that a, that cat waves, even though it doesn't look like a normal wave to like people from America, that's how people will often like usher people in in Japan. So they like really like take their hand mm. and like imagine it like they put their hand out and then like you point your fingers down and then you kind of like wave your hand back and forth. Mm. Um, and so... <laughs> Sorry, that's such a bad description. So look, I don't know how else to I, So I looked um, up, um, like, the concept behind, like, crickets being lucky. And because the only thing I can recall um, off the top of my head is, do you remember in Mulan where yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. her grandmother was saying to keep the cricket? And I yeah. just looked it up. And apparently, as far back as 500 BC, people revered the song of the cricket and often kept crickets in cages to enjoy that song on a regular basis. But I I just don't know. I feel the whole concept of luck, because think about how we view superstition, right? Mm. And luck has to do with superstition. Like there are certain objects, there are certain amulets or certain, you know, species of animals that we that we see as lucky. But the way that people view like any form of superstition in the West is kind of, like, primitive. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that might kind of be alluding to the underlying, like, uh, connotation, I guess, of how white people view, like, Eastern or, or like, Asian, Middle Eastern, African uh, countries that have certain, you know, like, cultural things that they that necessarily don't make sense to white people you know Mm -hmm. yeah I I just like don't understand like lucky cat yeah I guess kind of like the cat is supposed to bring in like people and like that often is like then translated to like the lucky cat supposed to help you like 
give you good luck to bring in money. Um, I just like don't understand like what the need is to like why people feel the need to put lucky in front of things yeah. to make it sound more Asian. Like we'll talk a little more about this later, but there's another restaurant that we're going to highlight called Lucky Lee's. Mm-hmm. Like oh, what? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, like kind of circling back with Andrew Zimmern, this is a direct quote from him on why he decided to open up this quote unquote Chinese restaurant in Minnesota. Because, okay, this again, this Chinese restaurant has a tiki bar in it. Like, what, what the heck is going on? Is Didn't he say he wanted to open like, an authentic oh restaurant? God. Zimmern's quote on why he's opening up this restaurant. He says, and I again, I'm quoting here. Mm-hmm. These are not my words. <laughs> he said, quote, unquote, I think I'm saving the souls of all the people from having to dine at those, at these horseshit restaurants masquerading as Chinese food that are in the Midwest. Oh, my God. Um, and this hurts. I think, you know, physically. Yeah. To really, because his comments completely ignore the fact that so many of those Chinese restaurants in the Midwest and around the country were opened up by Chinese immigrants and Chinese families who had no other way of supporting themselves. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, this goes back to a lot of how, you know, sometimes people might like get degrees or licenses in other countries and then come to the United States and that doesn't translate or there's some barriers in terms of obtaining obtaining licenses mm-hmm. uh, you know in, limited English proficiency play, proficiency plays a lot into that because they can't take tests that are necessary to give them an equivalent you know job yeah in the states um, but they opened up these restaurants and they had to change or adapt the Chinese food that they knew um, to cater then to these white taste buds i call them bland white taste buds um and that is what andrew zimmern is calling horseshit Mm -hmm. but he i mean again that completely ignores the fact that the only reason why those that you know american chinese food is so different than like chinese food from china Mm -hmm. is because american chinese food was specifically made for white people to enjoy because those were the people who had money that could pay for the food make the paychecks um for these restaurants that to survive and for these families to survive. Um, and yet here you see a white man attacking them mm-hmm. for doing that. Um, and then saying like, I can make it better than you. So I'm going to open up a quote unquote authentic Chinese restaurant. Um, not knowing that like this, these, um, this American Chinese food that is, you know, everywhere you see them in small, like local, like mom and pop um, restaurants or, you know, things like even Panda Express was started by a Chinese-American family. TFJ yeah. um, was started by a Chinese-American. Um, those things that he's calling horseshit are, you know, authentic. They're just modified, I guess, authentic, you could say. Um, and I bet you he's modifying the food that he's making, too. Yeah, I think it was really fun. I don't remember exactly when I saw this article, but I think I saw an article about his restaurant, maybe, like, a few months ago and apparently the food was really bad yeah i'm not surprised whoever whoever reviewed it it was not good yeah which i found really funny um and satisfying yeah. but yeah so that was andrew zimmer and um i mean that one is a pretty kind of dry he he did kind of apologize for his comments but it was more of a i i'm sorry if you were offended by my comments oh my God, I hate that. Um, which like again makes me really frustrated because andrew zimmer really he built his fame off of going to visit a lot of families from places around the world or even in the United States that a lot of them are immigrant families. Um, a lot of them are families who are, are trying to make home 
in the United States that are and trying to adapt their way of living to a um, into like the white context of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for him to say that about restaurants that are largely immigrant and POC owned was, I think, kind of disappointing yeah. to me to see because he was again, he was one of those people that I really enjoyed watching. Um, I thought his show, um, his show and Anthony Bourdain's shows on television really approached things in a much more nuanced and sensitive way and yeah. um, were really respectful mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, Anthony Bourdain for sure, though. Like, to this yeah. day, I haven't seen anything problematic in terms of his behavior when he goes to these countries. Like, Andrew Zimmern's behavior, like, that is problematic, we highlighted. But in terms of Anthony Bourdain, I was doing some cursory research and I couldn't find anything. And, like, it's just so sad, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Anthony Bourdain, I think maybe I just there's a special affinity for me with Anthony Bourdain because a lot of my family really loves him. Yeah. There's specifically my mom's family really loves him because he absolutely loved Vietnam and he would go back to Vietnam all the time. Like he has done multiple shows mm-hmm. across each of his different television series in Vietnam. And I think, well, at least I think for my mom's family, it was a way for them to kind of go back to Vietnam without having, without yeah. going back physically because they can't um, or they don't want to. Yeah for the most part. So, um, yeah, no, I think, yeah, this is kind of a sidetrack, but Anthony Bourdain, it was a, I loved it. He also did a really amazing episode on, I think it was Laos. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely check it out. His Parts Unknown is on Netflix, so. I've watched all of them. You, oh, it's so good. I, the one I find the funniest is the one he did in the Alps, and they ate, just ate a bunch of cheese. Um, <laughs> That was okay. I this is such a side track, but that was so funny. Yes. Check it out. Um, but going back to more problematic people slash restaurants, there was a, another um, quote unquote Chinese restaurant that opened up in New York City called Lucky Lee's. Again, Lucky. Don't really know what this is supposed to mean. Um, and Lee's, I don't know where she gets that because Lucky Lee's was opened by a white woman in New York City named Ariel Haspel. Um, in, again, in New York City, a city where there are literally three different Chinatowns within the city limits. That's there's hilarious. one on Manhattan, there's one in Flushing, there's one in Flushing, Queens, and in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. So you have three options for Chinatowns. Mm-hmm. Um, and has, those places have, I probably, I mean, have the best Chinese food, hands down, that I've ever had. Um, I mean, of course, I've never been to China, so I can't. True say that but uh, I can't like my world you know my sample size is pretty small yeah but in New York City she decided to open a quote-unquote clean Chinese oh restaurant my God, stop yeah no no this is directly that's what her description of the restaurant was oh my god um, in Instagram posts that have since been deleted um Ariel Haspel leaned heavily on racist stereotypes of Chinese food when she was trying to market her restaurant she claimed her food wouldn't make people feel quote-unquote bloated or quote-unquote heavy like other Chinese restaurants that are quote-unquote too oily or salty. Oh my god. Um, there's more. There is more. Um, she has said that she quote-unquote steers away from MSG because, quoting here, people claim to have certain reactions to it. Again, a claim that has literally no scientific evidence to back it up. The FDA has literally said MSG is fine for you. Mm-hmm. The FDA, yeah. 
And yet people are clinging on to this idea that MSG is bad. Again, MSG is just salt. It's monosodium glutamate. Mm -hmm. It is modified salt. And it's not bad for you. It's actually the the flavor profile that everyone wants. It's umami. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the belief that MSG is bad for you or that people have negative reactions to it are literally just based off of, again, racism. Um, negative reactions to MSG are pretty much only talked about in relation to Chinese slash Asian food, but yet not in reaction to American processed food, like chips. Which have a lot of MSG too. Yeah. If anyone likes Doritos, you know you're eating like a ton of MSG in that. Um, yeah, and I mean, just like, again, I don't... This white woman is literally leaning on false racist stereotypes against an entire cuisine of food and people to then remarket and self and profit off of that specific food, which is in many ways messed up. Yeah. Um, and this restaurant is also, I looked it up, it's in Greenwich, Greenwich Village, um, which is kind of near Washington Square Park and NYU. Um, and it's a pretty white neighborhood. <laughs> um, and it's also kind of far away from any of the Chinatowns in New York City. I mean, I so I lived in New York City last summer. I spent quite a bit of time in the East Village um, and walked through Greenwich Village a few times too. Um, but if I wanted to go from like Greenwich Village to um, Manhattan's Chinatown, I'd still have to take a subway train that for at least like 15 minutes maybe. Um, and I don't even think there's a direct line i think i might have to transfer somewhere so mm -hmm. it's definitely like removed from chinatown which is manhattan's chinatown is one of the oldest chinatowns in the country um and there's a lot of history there yeah and again it's really frustrating because there are three chinatowns in new york manhattan flushing or sunset park um and they're all the home it's the home to amazing and like super affordable chinese food um that a lot of them are still largely owned by chinese families and passed down through generations and particularly a lot of them are now like um done by like immigrant families mm -hmm. i mean also like thinking about the fact i again i haven't looked exactly at like this quote-unquote clean chinese restaurant but the fact that it's in greenwich village opened by a white woman um and it's supposed to be like healthy for you yeah i don't even know if that's true um it's probably expensive but you can get but I think the best barbecue, baked barbecue pork bun I've ever had in my life for less than $2 wow. in Manhattan's Chinatown and is literally the size of my face. Wow. It is so big. It One bun is $1.20. Oh my God. It is so cheap and it is so good. I remember when my parents visited me in New York last summer. I made I made us before we left New York. I made us go to Chinatown <laughs> and picked up like four pork buns because yeah. I was like, we're gonna eat this on the road. Um, but again, like, there's this white woman who's trying to build like start this restaurant in a fairly gentrified part of New York City, removed from the ethnic enclave of Chinatown, trying to sell Chinese food. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I. So refreshing. There are so many things with Lucky Lee's. Again, Lucky, what? what is this? Yeah. White people, okay, 
PSA to white people, just stop saying lucky to make it sound like Asian. Seriously. Because I don't I don't think that's what you should be going for. Um, but yeah. Do you do you want to talk about Cook's burritos though? Because I think that one's that one's insane too. Yes. So um Cook's Cooks, is it Cooks or I think Cooks? I think it's Cooks. Cook I have no idea. Burritos is a food cart in Portland that was started by two white women who stole recipes from women in Mexico and then recreated them and sold the food. And these two women traveled to Puebla, Mexico and did quote unquote research, aka pestered and annoyed Mexican women who were trying to make money until they got answers from them. Um, and there's a quote and it says, they wouldn't tell us too much about the technique, but we were peeking in the windows of every kitchen, totally fascinated by how easy they made it look. And in terms of fusion cuisine, so we're kind of grappling with the, with the thought of is fusion food racist and does that depend on who makes it? I don't know. Kaylin, what are your thoughts? I don't know. It's so hard because I personally like, scoff at fusion food because a lot of times it's just like overpriced um and ridiculous like things that don't make any sense um but it's just it's so hard because like I don't know if fusion if you could necessarily classify fusion food as racist because if we're going back to like culinary racism or culinary appropriation as trying to claim ownership over a type of food I think fusion food in a way like kind of gives it an out by saying like, Oh, it's fusion. So I'm not claiming ownership of this particular thing. I'm just fusing it with another sort of cuisine. I don't know. It's so hard. And I think maybe it is racist. I don't know. I have like been undulating back and forth about it too, because of the idea of um, col- the colonial coloniality. Or col- oh my God. <laughs> um, coloniality is that what it I think it is yeah um of you know the idea of like fusion cuisine um I remember I was watching this show called ugly delicious which for the most part is a pretty good show I um, enjoy it a lot ugly delicious it's on Netflix Mm -hmm. it's Dave Chang's show okay um each episode he kind of highlighted a different sort of food um or dish and kind of did a whole like mini like cult culinary anthropology sort of thing on it um and highlighting it talking to different people um and there's one on shrimp and crawfish mm-hmm. which the heart of it was really talking about Viet Cajun cuisine which is something that's really popular in Texas because there's a lot of um Vietnamese people who moved there after the war um and they kind of fused together like Japanese like not Japanese Vietnamese like techniques mm-hmm. or flavors with like the existing Cajun flavor and Cajun cuisine in the in that area yeah. um and then Dave Chang kind of said something that like made me like mm, a little bit yeah. where he said that Vietnamese food was the first fusion cuisine or is one of the first fusion cuisines mm-hmm. um because of the amount of French influence in what is known now as like Vietnamese cuisine I don't know I just like but I think that whole thing the idea of like categorizing Vietnamese food as fusion because of French influence I think it's messy there because of the history of colonialism Mm -hmm. like you would you would never have like certain things Mm -hmm. 
if it wasn't for French colonialism in Vietnam, which I like again, I just like don't know. Like, I, is fusion food racist? So are we that? supposed I, to be thankful for our oppression? Yeah, like that's that's what's so hard for me to figure out. Like, but then also like there's things that I know would not ha- have existed without French colonialism that I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. So I, I I just like don't know. I'm so. I'm so conflicted. Or is it like only racist? For instance, if we say like a white chef tries to fuse like, I don't know. I see this. I see this a lot. Like white chefs trying to fuse like Japanese cooking Mm -hmm. and like Japanese cuisine with like white food. Yeah. What is white food though? True. (laughs) There's so many existential questions now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I just- it's hard. I don't know. I feel like I don't know enough about it to be able to say definitively, but also like just based on what I know. So like fusion food is when you blend multiple different like cultures or even countries um, and you like get a kind of food. Right. But then I feel like mm-hmm. you're oversimplifying it. Like, why do we need to blend them in the first place? Mm, that's true. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess, I don't know, like, if you guys have any insightful uh, opinions about that, because, like, this show is a lot about us kind of, like, bouncing ideas off of each other, thinking about, you know, like, whether or not something is problematic, and if you guys have something to share, then you know where to find our Google form. We've, like, plugged it 10 million times at this point, but <laughs> this kind of leads into um, what I was going to talk about real briefly, and... um it's that not only is this something uh, that Asian people broadly encounter in terms of kind of like culinary racism, culinary appropriation, it's something that Middle Easterners are dealing with on a massive country-sanctioned level right now. Um, And like, honestly, I got to be careful how often I talk about this because it makes me mad and I cannot be like (laughs) messing up my whole day, my blood pressure, you know, And so basically the tea is that ever since um, Jewish people immigrated to Palestine, which kind of like a quick history on how they even ended up there. So love Dr. Amy Randall. I took a million different history classes with her specifically because I loved the kind of professor she is. But we talked a lot about how Jewish people even ended up in Palestine. And that really had a lot to do with before the Nazis started concentration camps and extermination programs, their goal was to just get these people out of the country, like get all the Jews out of this country. They can go wherever the hell they want. It doesn't really matter as long as they're out of Germany. And Palestine was one of the different like kind of locations where a lot of Jews were kind of funneled over there because, you know, America wasn't really like being active in terms of kind of like not only accepting refugees, but stopping the genocide. Um, Mm -hmm. And then like a lot of other places kind of, they made immigration for the fleeing Jews really difficult. So they ended up going to Palestine. And um, it was only after, you know, like Hitler and the Nazis had given them like this opportunity to get away. And then when a lot of them didn't flee, that's when they began the extermination because they were like, well, you were asking for it because you stayed, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's fine. We love immigration. But the issue is when you have a group immigrate to another land that already has a name, that already has a people, that already has a culture, and then try to basically 
take over that land, claim it as yourself, which is exactly what we saw happening, you know, 400 years ago when colonizers came to America. And I love that we can condemn what happened 400 years ago and have such strong opinions on it, but we are not able to recognize that exact same thing happening on Palestinian land today. And so basically, once the Jewish the Jewish people immigrated to Palestine, you know, they took their land, they kind of put them in like, I don't want to say ghettos, but I'm pretty sure that's what it, they are called, you know, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pretty sure that's where like the, the negative connotation of the word ghetto came from. They basically put them in like really poor um, kind of like cities, structures, and they began oppressive structures against the Arab nations in the Levant. Um And we've been seeing Israeli culinary racism towards Arab foods and, like, appropriation uh, as these foods as Israeli. And something I want to talk about is, like, a quote specifically where um, it's just literally, like, more – so this is a – sorry. I'm very all over the place because I'm angry. (laughs) (laughs) So – there's a quote, and I'm reading from an opinion piece that Nada Elia wrote, and it's called Food, Art, and Literature, How Israel is Stealing Arab Culture. And this is a really well-written piece, um, but there's a specific quote, and it says, By stealing from various Arab countries, Israel is confirming what it is, an outsider with no respect for cultural boundaries and a startup colonial nation with aspirations to imperial grandeur. And I feel like something that really highlights this for me is the fact that a while ago, a couple years ago, you know, I went to a falafel place and I thought, okay, falafel is Middle Eastern, it's Mediterranean food. So I'm expecting, you know, people to be who people who identify as Mina, Middle Eastern, North African running this place. And then I saw the menu and the menu had Israeli salad on it. And I look hmm. at the ingredients and I'm like, are you literally shitting me right now? This is Iranian. This is solo chirazi. Like, that's what we call it. And Mm -hmm. it just made me so mad because to take something... And then I went and I looked at their reviews and people were like, oh my God, I love the Israeli salad. It's so good, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, that's not... It's That's not it. That's not what it's Mm -hmm. called. Nobody recognizes this dish as Israeli salad except for y'all. Everywhere else, every, like, Arab, Middle Eastern, North African country has their own kind of, like dishes and I feel like Israel is just literally taking as many of them as they think are palatable and really like putting their trademark on it and then pushing it out mass producing it and really taking away from like the actual culture and history behind these dishes and like I want to talk more about this specifically in the Palestine episode that we are inevitably going to do because this is something I feel Mm -hmm. really strongly about but I didn't want to talk about another genocide when you know Last week, we just were speaking about the Armenian genocide. Um, so that's probably something that Kayla and I are going to cover on our own podcast. But if that's if this is something of interest to you, please stay tuned because I have a lot to say. And that episode is probably going to be like three hours long. <laughs> yes. So, we should just make it a series. Seriously. So, Kaylin, do you want to close off? Yes. So I just like don't – I didn't really know exactly – the best way to wrap this up um, because we just went in so many different directions and we there's a lot to cover I think yeah. with the idea of like culinary racism and appropriation is not necessarily that something that of something that's super nailed down in terms of an area of culture that people look at um 
it's I think it's relatively emer- it's relatively new and emerging right, right. now, um, which I think is going to be interesting to look at to see if anyone does more about it later. Um, but other than to say, if you want to eat out, I suggest going out and supporting some locally owned POC slash immigrant owned restaurants. Um, there are a ton in Santa Clara and San Jose. So, I mean, pick whatever you're in the mood for. I know on El Camino um, by campus, there are a ton of Korean restaurants um, that are amazing and so, so good. Uh, but I just wanted to plug a couple of local recs from me. Um, one being China Chen, which is a Vietnamese restaurant in downtown San Jose that was started by two Vietnamese refugees who fled Vietnam in 1978 after the fall of Saigon in 1975 mm-hmm. Should go there. They have the most amazing, it's, oh my God, I get the same thing every time. It's number 10 <laughs> on the menu. Um, it's essentially like egg noodle with like pork broth um, and like shrimp wontons and uh, roasted barbecue pork. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh my God, it's so good. Um, my friend and I go there all the time. It's also really, really inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Like, I think a big, like a big ass bowl. Like if you get, so they're small is like actually really big. Like um, I think it's like around, it's less than $10 wow. for a bowl. Um, so it's really affordable. The only thing that's hard is parking, but that's just downtown San Jose in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely check that out. It's really cool. It's really close to San Jose State's campus too. So um, it's a lot of fun to be around. Actually, my fun fact, my uncle who lives in Bakersfield, um, for a while because he had a lot of friends up in San Jose State he would come up and visit them um because they still live in San Jose after they graduated uh they would go specifically to China Chen oftentimes whenever he came up um he's made my mom buy him like like a pound or two of noodles before from them like uncooked noodles you can do that too mm-hmm. uh, and she he's made her go and pick up a, two pounds of uncooked noodles and bring them down to him where he lives in Bakersfield. So mm-hmm. um, the dedication there. Yeah. Um, and also check out uh, if you're something looking for something fancier, China Chen's like a much more laid back kind of, I hear it's great hangover food um, from a friend. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, if you're looking for something a little more fancy, upper, like, you know, high uh, upscale sort of thing, Check out Chef Chu's. Mm-hmm. It's a place. It's a Chinese restaurant in Los Altos. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super nice, kind of fancy. Specialty is Peking duck. Uh, oh yeah, oh, wow. so so good. Um, it's also owned by the parents of John Chu, who is the director of Crazy Rich Asians. Wow. Um, fun fact: Also, <laughs> I'm making my parents take me there for my graduation lunch after commencement. Oh, that's so cute. My my whole thing, I was like, we're not going to go to an American slash white restaurant. Oh, my God. I love that. <laughs> so, and because, like, I have family flying in who, like, aren't huge fans of Korean food, my parents were like, maybe let's find something that's, like, a more happy medium. And I was like, let's go to Chef Chu's. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything that you want to fly to Princess? No, I think we're good. So, I guess we'll catch you whenever we catch you. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Bye.